It's said that there are two things in life that are certain, death and taxes. Uh, I'd like to add a third, trials. Death is sure, taxes are sure, trials are sure. Trials, difficulties, hardships. You are going to experience them. Will it be cancer? Will it be backstabbing? Will it be an unloving spouse? Will it be a wayward child? Will it be natural disaster? Will it be war? Will it be COVID-19 and everything that goes along with it? It's not a question of if, brothers and sisters. It's a question of when. It's not a question of if, brothers and sisters. It's a question of how bad. And it's not a question of if. It's a question of how will you respond So will your trials have a sanctifying love for Christ increasing, maturity producing effect? Or in your trials, will you begin to drift? By degrees and inches, will you begin to move away from intimacy and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ towards anger, harshness, numbness, coldness, disinterest, dot, dot, dot. Fill in the blank. The question I want to ask you today, and it's a very serious question, it is a very serious question. What can you do to keep yourself close to Jesus Christ? What can you do to keep yourself from the danger of drifting away from Jesus Christ? God gives us the answer in our text today. Praise God. Would you open up your Bibles with me to James chapter 1, verse 1. It's towards the end of the Bible. James chapter 1, verse 1. And as you turn there, pray with me one more time. Father, we ask that as we open your word, you, by the power of your spirit, would open our hearts to receive it and that we would determine to do it. Oh God, we ask this in the name of the mighty, victorious, and risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Verse 1. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. James writes this letter to Jewish Christians, to the twelve tribes. He writes this letter to Jewish Christians who've been scattered from Jerusalem due to persecution to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And what this means is that James wrote this letter to brothers and sisters in their season of trial. 
They've been uprooted from their homes. The historical setting for this is likely the persecution that arose following Stephen's martyrdom in Acts 7. And everybody but the apostles had to flee Jerusalem. So these guys have been uprooted from their homes and they've just been scattered all over. But this is not just a letter, brothers and sisters, to Jewish Christians in this exact historical setting. This is a letter to all of God's people. This is a letter to all of God's people who are on our way to heaven. Truly, all Christians are part of the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Why? Because the church of Christ is the new covenant people of God. And regardless of where we're located physically, we are all exiles right now. Just ask yourself, am I in my heavenly home this morning? (laughs) No. We are on our way, and we are dispersed across the globe. And so this letter is addressed to us, brothers and sisters, in our sojourn to the heavenly city. And James says to us, greetings, brothers. Greetings, sister. And then he says to this, to us, this in verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various kinds of trials. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, those are a humdinger couple of verses right there, to use just a country phrase. And the overall point James wants to make to us is that we should see our trials in perspective. We should see our trials in perspective. So what's the perspective he wants us to have? Well, first of all, trials are to be viewed as occasions for joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I think we just need to step back and ask simple questions of the text this morning and give simple answers. So I want to ask two questions about this. I want to ask, what are the trials that James has in mind? And I want to ask, what does it mean to count it all joy? So let's just start with the first. What are the trials James has in mind here? Well, he has in mind various trials. That's what the text says. In other words, he has in mind all sorts of trials. Of course, in his mind, he has the immediate trial that they're experiencing. They've been uprooted from their homes due to persecution. But he has in mind so much more. Various trials capture the gamut of trials that exist in a fallen world. So a tornado runs through a neighborhood and destroys a home. Birth defects that result in a lifelong disability. Malignant tumors. Malicious co-workers. Hateful words spoken to you because of your skin color relentless bullying, job loss, and you don't know if you're going to have enough money to pay the bills. Listen, whatever trial you can think of, trials resulting from natural evil, tornadoes, trials resulting from personal evil, like a bully, whatever, whatever. It's all included here, big tent. And James commands us to count these as joy. Now, that's shocking. Count it all joy when you've been laid off and you don't know how you're going to pay the bills in three months. That's that's shocking. So what does it mean to count it all joy? Well, let me just try to paint the picture for you. 
First of all, it's not inconsistent with grief. We know that from Scripture. Specifically, we know it from the Psalms. There is a right and a good place to acknowledge the hardship of a situation, to grieve the hardship of a situation, to go to the Lord with the hardship of a situation. Counting it all joy is not inconsistent with that. Here's my best shot at what it is. If you're a note taker, just write this sentence down. To count trials as joy is to choose to have a perspective that sees and appreciates all that God is doing in the trial. To count it all joy is to choose to have a perspective that sees and appreciates all that God is doing in the trial. God does so much for us in trials. We're going to cover two of them in just a second, but just just think for a minute about a few things that God does for us in trials. He matures us. Our faith grows in trials. He purifies us, disciplines us. Sin is brought to the surface by the heat of trials, and we have the opportunity to repent. He draws us close in trials. It's often in trials we sense the presence of God more intimately. He makes us long for heaven in trials. How easy it is for us to be attached to the here and now. And trials force our hands off of our attachment to the here and now. And they cause us to look longingly for our home in heaven. He does so many things through trials. And to count it all joy is to look at our trials through the lens of what God is doing through them for our ultimate good. So what this is then is it's really a command to think rightly. It's a command to think rightly. Choose to think about your trials more than just think. Choose to embrace your trials in faith. And by the way, this is what leads to the experience of joy. Right thinking, biblical thinking, thinking in keeping with God's word leads to joy. This is what leads to singing hymns of praise to God in jail like Paul and Silas. This is what leads to rejoicing after you've been beaten for your faith because you've been counted worthy to suffer shame for Christ's name like the apostles in Acts 5. This is what leads to you like Job saying, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So this is the first part of the the heavenly perspective on trials. View them as occasions for joy because God is working. And next, James highlights a specific way God is working. Trials produce steadfastness. Count it all joy, James says. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Why should we count it all joy? Because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. What's steadfastness? Good questions. It's, it's sticking to something even when it's hard. It's sticking to something over the long haul. Trials have a way of producing that in us. They lead us to stick to Jesus. They lead us to draw close to Jesus. They lead us to cling to Jesus, to grow in Jesus. And do you know what happens when we do that? Our faith is revealed to be genuine. 
That's why it's said that this is a testing of our faith, because as we stick to Jesus, we are shown not to be rocky ground hearers. So do you remember you remember what the rocky ground hearer was like in Jesus' parable? He heard the word with joy. He's like, I'm all in. He's at church the next week and the next month and the next three months and six months. He just seems like a true believer. But when persecution and tribulation arose on account of the word, he fell away. So trials by nature are hard and therefore are so good because they reveal genuine faith. Ask yourself this question. How do I know that I really love Jesus? Answer. When other loves are taken away, you stick with Jesus. That's how you know you love Jesus. In this you rejoice, Peter says, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So trials are good because they reveal genuine faith. And they're also good because they strengthen us, this steadfast idea. I think about it like weightlifting. It kills me because my son makes me do leg day in the gym, and the next three days I look like a baby giraffe learning to walk. <laughs> but I, I, I know that this soreness leads to strength, right? I, I know that. Uh, those muscles being broken down, they build up stronger, and it's the same thing spiritually with trials. They're, they're painful. Though through them, God, he breaks us down to build us up stronger. We stick closer to Jesus, and we do it over the long haul. And this is a reason to count it joy, Amen. By the way, this is the way that God works with his children. So this isn't a way he works with his children. This is the way he works with his children. Oh, I only laugh because I wish it were different. Even Jesus says that he learned obedience through what? Through what he suffered. Jesus was the sinless son of God, and yet God saw fit for him to undergo trials. Do you think it's going to be any different for us? It's just not. But he has a wonderful wonderful, wonderful design in it, brothers and sisters. So we should count it all joy. But here's the deal. The temptation and the danger in this is to short-circuit the process. Okay? The temptation and the danger in this is to short-circuit the process. Short-circuit the process. Which is why James says what he says next. He says this. Look at verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Trials produce steadfastness. But you've got to let steadfastness have its full effect. All right. So let's just take a step back. If James says this, let steadfastness have its full effect, then what that means is that you can respond in such a way that steadfastness won't have its desired effect. So if he says we've got to let steadfastness have its full effect, Captain Obvious means we can respond in some way where steadfastness does not have its full effect. So what that means is that the benefits of trial aren't automatic. It means that the benefits of trials are dependent upon you letting steadfastness have its full effect. So this is really important. So what does this mean? 
It means not ejecting from the trial and short-circuiting what God is doing. It means not ejecting from the trial and short-circuiting what God is doing. Listen, your flesh and the enemy of your soul are going to work against you when it comes to counting it all joy. (laughs) Your flesh and the enemy of your soul are going to tempt you to respond with attitudes and actions that are not in faith. And here's what this could look like. It, It could look like you, in trials, thinking, you know, if God really loved me, I wouldn't go through this. That is a lie. Do not believe that lie. In fact, fight that lie with the truth that you going through this is actually proof that God does love you because he's treating you like he treated his son. And no son does he receive unless he treats them in the same way he treated his son. Or it could look like this. You know, if the devil can't get you to buy the lie that God doesn't love you, what he's going to do is he's just going to trick you. So he's going to whisper in your ear, hey, This really stinks. And you're like, yeah, this this does really stink. And then what he's going to say is, he's just going to suggest a number of ways that you could get out from underneath this or numb the pain of this. And here are some of them that that are just obvious, mucho buoy, muy bad calls, okay? Number one, get mad at God. Blame God. Numb the pain with alcohol. Numb the pain with marijuana. Escape from this and instead get your kicks and satisfaction through forbidden sexual activity. Become harsh and bitter with others. And you can justify it because this is hard. Just become angry. And you can justify it because this is hard. You see, in the pain of your trial, you may have a tendency to embrace a sinful response, which short-circuits the blessing of the trial. If you embrace a sinful response, you're not going to mature through the trial. You're not going to be purified through the trial. You're not going to draw near to God in the trial. You won't become spiritually stronger in the trial. The trial, which is intended to have all of these wonderful, glorious effects, is not going to come to fruition. But just as dangerous, because I'm assuming you're hitting here and me and you're like, amen, those are bad things, muy bad. We don't want to do those things. But just as dangerous and even more likely, I would say, are more subtle forms of action and attitudes that are dangerous and that represent this same idea. How about this? Perpetually feeling sorry for yourself. Numbing the pain through excessive entertainment. Not necessarily sinful. Numbing the pain through excessive time given to a hobby. Escaping through incessant work. Abandonment of duties God's called you to in the home. Dads and moms, husbands and wives not doing what you need to do in those roles. You become passive, you become lazy, you give up, you turn on each other. And here's a real big one. Slow retreat from engaging God in the means of grace. Slow movement away from Bible intake, from prayer, from church. 
I emphasize slow because the devil is crafty. If he can't get you to outright curse God in trial, he's going to try to just get you to inch by inch, degree by degree, separate you from the life-giving flow of the means of grace. And you're just going to wither up spiritually. But it's going to happen so slow that it's almost imperceptible. But eventually you're going to find dust accumulating on your Bible, prayer becoming less and less lively, and reasons for not coming to church becoming more and more and more easy to come up with. Brothers and sisters, this is what it looks like to not let steadfastness have its full effect. And this is why counting it all joy is so important because this is a real danger. Because this robs us of the spiritual maturity that trials are intended to bring about. That's this little phrase, the last little phrase here. This idea of spiritual maturity. This is what trials ultimately give to us. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect to what end? You may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect and complete here is speaking of spiritual maturity. Perfect and complete here is speaking of those who are not merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And thus show themselves to be possessors of eternal life. So the end of all this, the end of counting it all joy and trials, the end of it is eternal life. So what should we do here? Well, James says we should pray. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously to all and without reproach and it will be given to him. Listen, just a moment of honesty between you, me, and the fence post. Let's just pretend like nobody else is listening. Our inclination is not to count it all joy when we meet various kinds of trials. Can somebody say amen or oh my? Our inclination is not to count it all joy when we meet various kinds of trials. It's not. Our inclination is to groan. Our inclination is to get angry. Our inclination is to get distant, to get upset, to get cool towards God. Nothing could be further from our gut reaction than to count it all joy. Hence, we need to pray. Pray for the perspective that God would have us to embrace. That's what this verse is about. Praying for wisdom here is praying to see and embrace your trials in faith. This is not something that you can do in your own strength. This is something you need God to work in you. And so you need to pray. Oh God, help me to respond to this trial in faith. Oh God, help me to accept the heavenly rod that you have seen fit to bring my way right now. Oh God, help me not to eject from this. Oh God, help me not to give way to a whole host of ungodly thoughts and feelings that I am tempted to give way to. Oh God, help me to cling to your word and stand upon your promises that you are for me, that you love me, that you are in this for my good. That's praying for wisdom. And brothers and sisters, please don't miss the obvious. You must ask God for this. You must ask God for this. Walking by faith means walking by prayer. You remember there was a time in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian had no other weapon, and he had a lot of weapons. 
But he had no other weapon that could be effective in this particular moment than the weapon of all prayer. It was the only tool in his tool belt that was sufficient for the moment. Or I think about the the man in Mark 9 whose son was demon-possessed and his disciples couldn't cast it out. And they asked Jesus why, and Jesus just responded really simply, this kind can't be driven out by anything but prayer. Oh, we got to pray. we got to pray, brothers and sisters. And look at the promise of God attached to this. When we ask for wisdom, God gives it. He gives it generously, the text says. So, so he's not stingy. He's not reluctant with this. He's not holding out resources because he might run out. He's got more wisdom to give than Joseph had grain to give after storing it up for seven years of plenty. He is loaded, our God is, with wisdom. And he is happy, our God is, to dispense it. He gives it generously. He gives it generously and he gives it to all. God is indiscriminate in his generosity with his children. Any of his children who come to him asking for grace in the trial, oh, he is going to respond and he is going to give it. And he's going to give it without reproach. I love this. He is never going to say something like, you know, I see that you're having trouble counting it all joy. And what I'm going to do for you this time is I'm going to give you wisdom, but can you try to get your act together for the next time and just do a little bit better? That's not how God rolls. He wants you to come to him like a child comes to his parent when there's a problem. Children are wonderful examples of faith. When something's wrong, kids never think, oh, I can handle this. I got it, no problem. You're like, you haven't met my kid. I'm like, no, 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 just follow me for a second. Kids don't think that they're strong in and of themselves. They think, I need mom and dad to handle this. Kids have a low estimation of their power and a high estimation of God's power. And we need to be the same. Oh God, I need you in this. Oh God, left to myself, I will not handle this well. Oh God, please act. He will never reproach you for such prayers. He will never say to you, you should be stronger. Quite the opposite. He wants you to know you're not strong. But he's strong. And he wants to show you his strength on your behalf. You just need to ask. And you just need to ask in faith. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven by the wind and tossed. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. This is actually a very simple truth. To pray in faith is to trust that the promises of God are true. To pray in faith is to believe that God will do what he says he will do. He has said he'll give wisdom. Believe that. Believe it. He has said that he will give it generously. Believe it. He'll give it generously. And such belief, brothers and sisters, is more than justified. Just think with me. First of all, when has God not been true to his word? Huh, let me think. Hold on. Never. Right? Has he ever promised something and failed to follow through? Never. Second, God is the best father ever. 
Do you remember what Jesus said? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give what you need to those who ask him? God's the best father ever. And then he has already demonstrated his love for you in that he has given his son for you. If he's given Jesus Christ for you, will he not give you wisdom to act in faith in this trial? Of course he will. So pray, brothers and sisters. Pray confidently that God will answer your request. Do not countenance a moment of unbelief. Such a thing is wildly irrational given all that God has done. Trust his word. Trust his character. Trust his generosity proved to you in the gospel. Trust him when the lights have all gone out. Pray. Now at this point, what James does is he, uh, he transitions. And it may seem like a random transition, but it's actually not random at all. So speaking to believers who've been scattered to the four winds uprooted from their homes, telling them to count their various trials as joy. Now he applies this to these guys in their exact life situation. So many of them are undergoing a trial as it relates to financial stability, right? So what does he say? Verse 9. Let the, brother and, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I think this is beautiful. Here's what James does. He applies this count it all joy command first to the poor man. He looks at the brother who's down on his luck and what does he say? Let the, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now that's crazy. I'd say it's just as crazy as counting various kinds of trials as joy. But don't you think it makes sense when you think about it from an eternal perspective? He is to count his financial lowliness as joy. He is to boast in it. Why? Because hasn't God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom he has promised him? That's James 2. And it's strikingly similar to Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Boast in your lowliness, brother, because you're rich through the blood of Christ. Boast in your lowliness, brother, because you have wealth untold in heavenly places. Boast in your lowliness, brother, because those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 1 Timothy 5. What is James doing? Just step back. He's reorienting your perspective to a heavenly one. That's what he's been doing all along. And then he does the same thing with those who are better off. He says the rich man is to boast in his humiliation. Now what the heck does that mean? It means that just as he wants the poor man to see his situation in light of eternity and boast in that, so too he wants the rich man to see his situation in the light of eternity and boast in that. So what's the rich man's situation in light of eternity? What does James want want him to think about? That his riches earn him nothing in the eyes of God. 
That his riches are not a sign of God's favor. That his riches do not elevate him above his brothers. He's on the same level. That his riches will pass away in the blink of an eye. That only riches, that the only riches that matter are the eternal riches that come through faith in Jesus Christ. So really, this, this passage, this whole passage is James commanding us to think about all of life differently. Instead of thinking about life through a worldly lens or the lens of our emotions or the lens of what our mom would say or the lens of what seems good in the here and now, he wants us to put on the lens of faith. See your life. Interpret your life. Live your life through the lens of faith in Christ which transforms everything. Look at your life through that lens and embrace that lens and the end for those who do is eternal life. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. This is the end for those who remain steadfast, eternal life. So I just want to close by offering you a few thoughts. So to my brothers and sisters, I think the question we need to ask is a very straightforward question from the text. Are you counting your various trials as joy? Notice James assumes that we have a choice about this. I wonder if you think you have a choice about this or maybe if you're thinking about this wrongly. If you don't think you have a choice to count it all joy, then what I would tell you is that you're putting too much weight upon your emotional response to difficulty and not enough weight upon the word of God which assumes this is a choice you have to choose joy. Just like you have a choice to choose love, to choose to love your spouse regardless of the day-to-day things you have to work through. It's a choice to choose to count it all joy when you encounter various types of trials. This is wonderfully freeing because we have a tendency to be enslaved to our response, our emotional response. And James frees us from this and instead tells us you need to make a choice to choose to count it all joy. So my question is, are you choosing that? Are you choosing to embrace a perspective that sees and appreciates all that God is doing in your trial? Are you embracing your trials with the eye of faith? Or are you drifting? Are you drifting slowly away from intimacy and obedience to God? Which one are you doing? In what realm of life? If you aren't, then I want you to recognize the spiritual danger you're in. You are not letting steadfastness have its full effect. And so if you aren't, here's my encouragement to you. Number one, recognize that you're not and that that's spiritually dangerous. Number two, repent. Confess to God the specifics of how you're not Counting it all joy. So translation, what is it for you? Is it anger, bitterness, general bad attitude? What? Just confess that to God. 
And then number three, pray. Pray and ask God to help you have wisdom to count it all joy. You're like, that sounds awfully simple. It is, but that's what the Bible tells us. So why don't we do it, right? Pray. And then I would say, rehearse gospel truths. Rehearse the gospel truth that God loves you and you know he does because he gave his son for you. Rehearse gospel truths that sufferings are part of the way in which he proves the genuineness of our faith and makes us more steadfast. And sufferings are the way that he caused his son to learn obedience and he's gonna do the same thing for us. Rehearse those gospel truths. And then do what's right. Do what's right. Pursue habits of grace. Lean in to the presence of the Lord through his word, through prayer, through church. Talk to a brother or sister about this. Ask them for their help. And just commit to simple obedience to God's word in relation to the trial that you are undergoing. I will endeavor to count this as joy. To embrace and to experience what God has for me in this for my ultimate spiritual good. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you that Christianity transcends suffering and promises you meaning and purpose in the midst. Listen, everybody suffers and everybody goes through trial. The question is, do you want to be controlled by your circumstances or do you want to know that through your circumstances there is a God in heaven who is working to draw you closer to himself, who will, in fact, bring you to himself. In other words, do you want to be able to walk through suffering knowing that they are not meaningless, but full of meaning and purpose? This is what Jesus offers you. He himself suffered so that you might not suffer eternally, and he rose in order that we might know he is true, and his promises are all yes and amen. And so I would encourage you today, you don't have to be a slave to your circumstances, or just hope that life will go relatively well. Instead, You can entrust yourself to a God who through his son entered into our experience, suffered on our behalf in order that we might not suffer eternally and he redeems our suffering even now. Amen. So I would encourage you to entrust yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, as we prayed at the beginning, we pray now and we just ask that you cause us, Father, to hear and to heed 
and to do. Give us grace. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we come to the table this morning. Rejoicing in all that he has done and reminding ourselves of our sure and certain end in Christ.